0: Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and I am very appreciative that you guys continue to support our channel. And uh, if if you haven't already, do me a favor, wherever you're listening to your podcast, whether that's on Spotify, Google, iTunes, give us a review, give us a five-star review. And uh, by all means, guys send us comments, you know, send us, uh, send us personal messages on Instagram or Facebook. Let us know how we're doing. Let me know what you think. Um, if there's topics you want to hear about you know, that'd be well appreciated too. And you know, if you've got, uh, if you've got things you'd like to share on this channel, you reach out to me, uh, Facebook, Instagram at Pennsylvania woodsman podcast. And also we've got our email PA woodsman podcast at gmail.com. You know, all that stuff is it's, great info for me it's it's a great way to just gauge what everybody's feeling when they're listening to our show but again I'm I'm just real appreciative and on this week's episode we are going to finish up our conversation with Corey golvis and if you remember back in the beginning in for part one if you ch- tuned in if you did not tune in I, I really suggest going back and listening because we we talked a lot about the evolution that cory went through of becoming a deer hunter Corey kind of really fell in love with whitetail hunting a little bit later in high school time frame you know he he was around hunting he was around the great outdoors but uh, really took interest in whitetails and bigwood's whitetails here in northern pennsylvania around that time frame and he's been growing in progression ever since talks a little bit about his shed hunting experience and how he has just became infatuated with that and his his bow hunting experience and transitioning to recurve we started talking a little bit about whitetail hunting strategy and the successes that he has found throughout that time frame and we're going to pick back up in that portion of the conversation and then after that to follow up we are going to get into a little bit more detail about his recurve shooting and if you've never shot recurve traditional archery First of all, it's a whole new world. It's, you're talking about really fine-tuning your mistakes in your shooting and shooting form. And it's, uh, it's, I've tried it, and that's about as much as I can say as I've tried it. And I hats off to people like Corey who have the patience and take the time to <clears throat> master shooting without sights and shooting without the, all the wonderful things that come with a compound and you know a lot of the things you face in archery whether that's compound or recurve i'm thinking along the lines of target panic and just good shot execution they both occur but it's it's just completely amplified in that and that's something Corey has experienced as a, a recurve shooter and he goes into some details about things that if you're not a recurve shooter it might sound a little bit foreign to you and we try to break that down and relate it to shooting on any level whether that is you know an experienced compound shooter or a beginning compound shooter or a beginning uh recurve and longbow shooter and it's it's just a great thing and it's easily it's easy to relate for me when I'm comparing it to my bow hunting experience and my shooting experience and preparing for the upcoming archery season. So, you know, I hope you really enjoy this part of the episode, um, part two of Corey. You know, I had a great time talking with Corey. You know, people like him are are. Why you they're, they're people that are fun and interesting to listen to because they have a lot of knowledge. Um, Corey's an extremely humble guy, and he just loves to be out in the great great outdoors, be out in creation, and enjoying the woods, enjoying the big woods of Pennsylvania, which is, is something to, uh, to cherish. So, before we get into the second part of the episode, I just want to do a couple of housekeeping things and give uh, give our remarks to Little Mountain Outfitters. Little Mountain Outfitters is an archery dealer in Richland, Pennsylvania. And if you guys are in the market for a new bow, I suggest you go and you check them out. <clears throat> They're dealers for Prime, Bear, PSE, and a couple more, Matthews, Um, crossbows accessories I just got a couple of arrows cut and set up and lined up ready to go for me this fall but not only that you've got all the the things you're gonna need for archery as well as some saddle hunting gear and mobile hunting gear for you to test out Um, get your hands on it feel it touch it talk to those guys who are well experienced in that area Um, they've also dealer for Rambo motorbikes um, check those out. Um, it's, it's a fantastic sight and the last thing is we're we're wrapping up you know we're getting closer and closer to fall food plot planting season. Uh, we'll probably have a couple episodes coming up here but the, uh, they're dealers for real-world wildlife seed, and it's a, it's a great resource for all things to get prepared for for the fall. So check them out on Facebook at littlemountainoutfitters.com, and if you need to get tuned up and ready to go, I really suggest reaching out to Devon and Terry. They're excellent bowsmiths with excellent customer service, so be sure to check them out. And With that, let's get started with this episode. And with that knowledge you have of being able to spend time off season and in season, you know, th- there's got to be a way that you kind of decipher when you pick a chunk of timber. I mean, let's just say there's a there's a chunk of national forest land that we're going to pick out. Let's say it's 25,000 acres, which is a, mm-hmm. it's, it's a small track compared to some of the, the national forest or state forest tracks that are in Pennsylvania. That's a lot of ground for somebody to cover. So, I, I mean, I'm kind of curious when you like how does somebody like yourself break down such a chunk of of land mass and say look this i'm going to cross these sections out for these reasons and that might be because well i i do find that whatever feature you see maybe it's a a ridge or a maybe it is a funnel on a map or maybe it's boots on the ground you find that natural like is is there a way that you kind of Cross ground off, like like because I feel like finding where you don't want to hunt mm-hmm. is just as important as finding where right. you
1: do want to hunt. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That I mean, yes. So I mean, Pennsylvania is uh, extremely, it's diverse in habitat, right? So if you go to the western part of the state, like my brother, he spends a lot of time in the national forest over there, and the national forest over there, um, you know, they cut they cut a decent amount of timber, and they have a lot of uh, salts dewberry swamps and things like that over here where you know where i hunt north central part of the state and and the deer love those dewberry swamps i'm absolutely love them and that's where he focuses a lot of his time and things like that well here where i hunt um you know we don't have any of that stuff so what i'm looking for here is you know clear cuts things like that and i'm looking for natural browse okay And, and i started with i will i will not like now i have maps on my phone but before, you know, up until about three or four years ago, I used to always have a print, printed aerial photo with me uh, from either Google Earth or Paza. You know, Paza. There's a website called Paza, P A S D A. dot P S U. dot E D U. that has great aerial photos on. And uh, I always, I was always, always print a, a printed aerial photo map along with a topo map of the same scale right underneath it. I will not go into the woods without that. You know. Then I would just, you know, try to get as much information as I can from the aerial photo as far as being, you know, clear cuts and things like that, or maybe even areas of, uh, you know, natural disturbances, uh, you know, wind events or even gypsy moth foliation where it killed, you know, where you see gaps in the canopy, because typically when you get gaps in the canopy, you're going to, the sunlight's going to get in the forest floor, you're going to get some, hopefully get some regeneration on the ground, young trees, browse, deer, browsers, right? So I'm looking for browse, things like that, um, and, uh, You know, it it takes a good, I don't know, I bet four or five years to learn an area, you know. And one thing I do want to say here, um, I have had probably my best success hunting within 200 yards of state forest and state game lands roads. Um, That may sound surprising to some. You know, when I started 2005, um, everything that I read was get deep, right? Get deep. Well, sure, there might be some areas that are very good you know, far back in, but I can assure you right now, some of the best areas are right beside roads and things like that. Because, and it's because the habitat is there. When I say habitat, deer food, things like that, there's usually maybe some type of timber management that was done beside the road or something like that. Um, so don't, you don't necessarily, deeper isn't always better. I can guarantee you that deeper is not always better. Um, I made a mistake, you know, of, of, of falling for that. You know, the first couple of years I started hunting big with areas. Mm-hmm. The perfect example with that is, uh, 2008, I, I was lucky enough to kill a, a seven-year-old uh, nine-point, and, uh, and I shed hunted that area for three, three years, and I had found some nice sheds there, and I was literally within 200 yards of the of state forest road, and uh, it took me a good two years to, to finally put a tree stand in there, because I thought, you know, mature buck will never come through there. It's too close to it. I could literally watch cars go by, you know, and I ended up killing over the next, I think it was four years, I um, ended up killing no, it was the next six years. It was ended up killing three mature bucks out of the same, basically the same area, right there in the same stand. I'm literally watching, state you know, the cars go by, and uh, and it's an area that a lot of guys overlook. Is what, what what it is. You know, mm. um, when I shed hunt, you know, I don't know what it is about this, but the the, box, the mature bucks of mature white and I'm a forester too. I didn't I didn't mention that. So I'm, I mean I'm in the woods a lot and I see this. at work a lot. Um, a lot of the a lot of the deer, especially mature bucks, and I don't know what the reason is for this, but they will come out and they will lay right beside the roads and, all, and watch the roads. And the reason I know this is because I find their shed in there. That's actually what I do. I do a lot of shed on right beside, right off of, off of, you know, public roads, state forest or state game lands road. Yeah. It's unbelievable how much you will see that. Unbelievable. It's crazy how much you'll see that. And, uh, roads don't mean anything to me. You know, they, they mean nothing to me as far as, uh, um, you know, where I'm going to hunt and things like that, you know. So they they did, like I said, the first couple of years I did, I would kill myself hiking in a mile and a half sometimes. And, um, you know, I still, you know, where I killed that that one two two years ago, I was in a little bit, you know, but um, I, I've had, you know good success just as much success right beside the road. So don't don't overlook those, you know, spots beside the roads but
0: Well, I'm um, curious. What do you think, you know, having had six seasons and three mature buck out of that area, what do you think looking back on that made that such an overlooked area?
1: There was a swamp there which deer like, you know, they like these swamps um uh in you know up in the north in the north country and there was a clear cut over there too um that the deer were uh you know basically spent a lot of time in and uh, that area has since changed. That's one thing I want to say too, is, uh, you know, it's funny Over the last 20 years, I have some areas that were for 10 years that were just very good areas as far as like not only shed hunting, but good hunting areas too. Now they're, they're just like cold, you know, things change. So you gotta be, you know, you gotta be observant of that and, and recognize that too, you know? So you gotta find new areas every, you know, every couple of years or whatever. You can't rely on the same area every year, which pretty much everybody knows that, but, um Uh, yeah yeah yeah, but uh um so yeah that's um yeah it's uh that's one of the reasons why that area was good like i said that the timber the management was there when i say management there was basically trees cut you know things like that uh clear cuts and uh, what we call shuttlewood harvest right things of that nature but yeah so i mean the reason the number one reason pennsylvania has bigger deer is you know there's obviously antler restrictions but the other thing is uh you know, there's more timber being harvested than what was being done 20, 30 years ago, you know, and deer browsers and, uh, you know, deer being browsers, they have more food to eat, you know? So that's, that's one of the reasons why, but <clears throat> excuse me, you know, last week we were talking about, um, last the season of last year, we had, when I say two year, we, we had a bad winter, not not this past year, but the year before
0: in twenty winter of
1: 2020 to 2021 was extremely brutal. Okay. And, uh, we lost a lot of deer up here in the, in the, in the mountains. And, uh, I, I found 42 winter kills last year in the spring season. And it was a short shed season. It was a short shed season last year. When I say last year, I'm talking 2021, not this year. And, uh, if you remember back to last year, um, 2021, uh, we had snow up here until about the March 20 something, you know, there's a lot of places I couldn't even get to in the mountains so the roads were iced were so bad. And then we got a, April was pretty much above normal temperatures. And then by the end of April, the fern was pushing up and my season was done by the 1st of May last year. So I basically had a five week season, you know, most shed hunters had a short season last year. And, uh, but yeah, the winter was brutal, uh, found, you know, several mature bucks that had already shed. And, and we had basically what we had was, uh, December 16th or 17th, something like that. I forget what it was of 2020. We got 35 inches of snow and then we got two inches of rain Christmas Eve that year. And it froze like a block of ice. And it was, it was the second hardest winter of my lifetime. The first hardest winter of my that I've ever can remember was the winter of 1994. That was extremely brutal. And, uh, we had snow. I think I told you just last week, we had snow in Potter County until June 3rd that year. Um, I'm not talking fresh snow. I'm talking snow that was there, uh, from, from the previous right. winter there. And, uh, but anyways, yeah, we, 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 last year was a rough season, you know, for mature bucks. A lot of them were, and, and again, this is my opinion. I spent a lot of time trail cameras and shed hunting this past year. I just, my shed count was down this year, especially with the size of some of the deer, some of the sheds that I found, you know, and even last year going back and running trail cameras, I just was not getting the bucks. And if you look at the, the buck poles, you know, local buck poles for for Potter County, Tayoga County, there was in my, you know, you, you'll you see it. There wasn't the night that there was still nice bucks around, but not the numbers we had previous years. And a lot of it, in my opinion, was was attributed to that winter that we had. So what I'm getting at is the mountain deer are faced with a lot of obstacles in their lifetime, you know, and uh, when the winter time is one of them for sure that that brings down a lot of. In my opinion, a lot of old bucks. You know, you get a, you get a bad winter. That's that's hard on them.
0: That's it. So, that so. would make sense to me too, because I mean, you, you think mm-hmm. about how hard a, a mature buck can run himself ragged uh, chasing yep. doe, and if you you know couple in some of the the stresses <laughs> you can face, whether it's maybe a poor mass crop that year, um, maybe early snow cover that's covering browse, uh, gypsy moth, something, you know, all the factors that could add another notch in the level of stress for a mature deer couple that with losing 30 to 40 percent of their body weight i think 30 percent is is not uncommon in a mature buck and then add a harsh winter that absolutely makes sense and you know we hear about that in other parts of the country you don't typically hear about that in pennsylvania but in the places you're talking about it's it's kind of the the one area of pennsylvania that's kind of like the untamed wilderness so to speak when you compare it to the rest of our state
1: it's well that's hard to measure unless you're out there spending a lot of time at it right
0: exactly and you're somebody who does
1: right exactly so you know that's um and and, you know i I work with you know eight or nine other forces and every one of them going to tell you that's what i just told you you know every single one of them and uh so yeah a lot not a lot of people may know that um it was it was definitely brutal up here for sure it may take a year or two to get back. You know, I definitely, like in the oak country, our best years as far as antler development is when you have acorn crops and not a winter, bar none. I mean, for sure. You, I mean, we. When, when I killed that deer a year and a half ago, I think I told you this, this last week, I was telling somebody this, maybe I think it was you, but uh, um, the last three years of his life, he had bumper acorn crops. And uh, he had a lot of browse available to him as well, but um, those acorn crops definitely attributed to his, you know, his. he obviously had good genetics too, superb genetics, but, um, those acorn crops definitely, um, attributed to his antler development for sure, you know, and, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things that, a lot of little things that have to come together, you know, to produce, um, I guess big antler deer. And, you know, one thing I've never, I can't say that I, that I hunt. Big, big antler deer I, I hunt mature deer
0: exactly because, and that's a trophy You right know. There.
1: yeah absolutely I I have sheds off of, I can't tell you how many bucks that they're you know over I don't know some over 3-4 years and you know they lived all up to 8-9-10-11 eight to eight, years old I have one who lived to 12 years old and the biggest set of antlers he grew uh, was 85 inches and wow. uh, if, if I had if you were here I could show you this it's the same exact deer from you know I, I think I knew I had I think I had four or five years of sheds from him over like an eight year period. He lived up to 12 years old, What well, I guess to be 12 years old, but, um, but yeah, he grew, he, he grows 85 inches and you know, a lot of people in a lot of people's minds that may not be a trophy, but boy, well, I tell you what, that is a, that's, that's a heck of a trophy, you know, regardless of what he has on his head, you know? So, You know, Um,
0: antlers are something for me. This is the way I view antlers, and I've talked about this when it comes to my personal goals. You know, you shared some of yours, and my personal goals are to harvest a deer that I believe is four and a half years or older, and I would like to do it with my bow. And if it has a very large set of antlers, to me that's a bonus, and that's that's a – that's a bonus, and it's one of the rewards when you see deer get to their age where they can express their full maximum potential. However, not all deer created equal, and I, I would personally right. rather harvest a deer that of, of a caliber like you just described that's somewhere in that you know five-and-a-half-plus-year-old range, whatever that may be, and might only gross 100 to 120 inches or, or 85 inches like this deer you just described. I mean, that's a trophy because – you know, I don't think the wits of that deer that has 85 inches on his head is any less than the no. deer of the same age that has 150 inches of bone on his head. Now, of course, if both are standing in front of you, I don't know a single <laughs> hunter that would right, shoot a right. 150 inch deer. But what I'm saying is when you go through a season like you're describing of, of seeing would what, you say 10 deer in a season or something like that mm-hmm. Tell you harvest you like yeah. that um, yeah yep. and to be able to hunt a deer with the same level of um what's the word i'm looking at like character or the same level of ability at that age class matching wits that's a trophy and i don't care it's just that, that that's just how i view it i mean they're they're the well, I agree. The eye of beholder, and I think age is a is a really really cool thing for whitetails.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, just because a you know a buck has 180 inches on it, it doesn't make him any smarter than than a a buck of the same age that has 90 inches on it. head, you know, a lot of people may may think that or you know view it that way, but no, it, it isn't that way. You know, so. But yeah, I agree 100 percent. Sure, yep.
0: Corey, I mean, this has been fantastic. I could probably pick your brain for another hour and and we didn't even get to talk about some of the, the things in, uh, in your recurve hunting journey, which I really wanted to get into. I just, I I do what I always do. And I get infatuated when people start to, you know, just unload what they think about the white tails and and the the big woods. And I I appreciate you um, talking about all those things and your experiences and, and, all your findings throughout the year. And, you know, maybe it, it comes that maybe we, we do this again sometime and talk a little bit more in depth about your recurve, um, hunting and the journey and and helping other people's take up a new challenge, uh, with a stick boat like you have.
1: Sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it is, it is enriched my life after it's it's changed my life. And, uh, it's just so much fun, so much fun. It's added such a new, it's, it's year round enjoyment of shooting the boat, right. You know, and, uh, but yeah, I would, we could definitely do that sometime, Mitchell. That would be great. Um, we could, you know, there's a lot there. I, you know, I struggled with, uh, target panic, the dreaded target panic, right? Um, and I, and I still, you know, I still struggle with that. Everybody does, you know, and I had it when I, when I, when I shot a compound, but I didn't, I didn't know what it was and it didn't, it didn't really matter much back then because I could still shoot accurately with it. Well, when I got it with a, with a recurve, um, I mean, I would miss by two feet, right? Wow. <laughs> so. And uh, it's, it's that much more, you know, uh, I guess noticeable with the recurve. But I found ways around it, and, uh, it, you know, Joel Turner has helped me a lot. Was, I'm sure there's a lot of people. I know you said you've heard of Joel Turner. And mm-hmm. that, that is his his, his uh, way of shooting has helped me, and I shoot with a trigger now, actually. And What, what I mean by that is I... Um, and two, let me back up a little bit. I, I have a little, I mean, we could, we could talk a little bit about this. It's kind of interesting stuff. And in my mind, it's my, in my mind, it's interesting anyway, that, you know, and uh, I don't know if there's many, you know, hopefully, some, you know, some traditional archers are listening to this that, uh, maybe they'll gain something from it. But in 2016, I ordered a new bow. 2015, actually I ordered, I ordered my first custom longbow, actually. And I got it like eight months later and, uh, I got it in April of that year and I shot the heck out of it. Just, I mean, I love the bow shot every day shot. I mean, there were some days I would shoot hundreds of arrows and, uh, I shot without a trigger. What I mean by a trigger is, um, a clicker of things like you know, if anybody's ever watched the Olympic shooter shoot, they're, uh, you know, they're 70 inch, uh, full metal, um uh, decked out recurve, you know, um, they're all shooting clickers, the Olympic recurve, the Olympic archers are shooting clickers and clickers basically just a, a piece of string, uh, spring mounted steel, that's hooked to their arrow. The end of their arrow, when they expand, uh, that that that, click, that uh, piece of steel uh, hangs over their arrow. When they when they pull that arrow behind that spring-mounted steel, that clicks, and that click is their cue to shoot. Well, I can do that. I mean, I shoot with a clicker on my my traditional bow as well. It's a limb-mounted clicker. It's a piece of string that connects from my from my bow string to the to the limb of my bow, and there's a piece of uh, a, a spring-mounted uh, steel there that when I pull on that, when you pull on that, it clicks. And that's my cue. That's my trigger to shoot. Well, I shot without a trigger for a long time. And in July of 2016, I filmed myself shooting that that new custom bow I had. And when I come in, I I filmed a couple, I don't know, a couple minutes of me shooting. And I come in my house and I put, put put the SD card in my computer. And I watched myself shoot and I about fell out of my seat at what I saw. I could not believe it. I was dropping the target. I was basically a drive-by shooter and I would come down. My arrow would sit right on the top. I'm a gap shooter. So I, you know, I'm seeing, I look at the arrow when I shoot and, uh, I would put the arrow on the top of the back of the deer and I would, in order to get it there, I would have to drop down to, to, you know, to to where I wanted the arrow to be. Like if I wanted to be behind the shoulder, you know, I'd have to drop down and I was, you know, it's called drive-by shooting. And, uh, I saw that. On the on the on the computer, and I couldn't believe I was doing it. I didn't even know I was even doing it. I called my dad that night, and I says, "You know, I can't believe it was my shot." I said, "I, I know I'm, I'm, drive, I'm a drive by shooter, and I didn't know I was even doing it." And my dad says, "You've been doing it you know, the last six months." He said, "I just didn't want to tell you because it would get worse, you know." <laughs> so yeah, that was July. That was July, and uh, you know, this is just some of the struggles of, and, the, and the fun of, of shooting a recurve. You know, getting getting past all this stuff. So that, that that July, you know, it was July in archery season. You know, I love, I obviously love deer hunting. I, I lived for that, you know. And, and I can remember the fall of 2016, and I, and I shot like that for the next couple months. And the fall of 2016 came, you know, and I can remember going, walking in the deer woods in prime time during the rut and thinking to myself, please, I don't want to see a deer today because I, I can't hit them. There's no way I can hit them. You know, I target panic so bad. Wow. And I didn't, know, I didn't know what to do. And you talk about a sick feeling. I don't make you, I don't, I don't, I mean, I ruined a season and I didn't know what to do. And, uh, that season ended and I didn't kill a deer that year. I don't think I even had an opportunity at a mature buck that year. And, uh, I did the best thing that I've ever done. I, I, I uh, I bought a target recurve and a 70 inch bow and I put a clicker on it. And for the next three months I transformed my shot and I uh, shot some indoor competition and, uh, that clicker really helped me out a lot. And the clicker, a lot of people talk negative about clickers. I can tell you right now, you put, putting a clicker on a bow is ex- an extremely difficult... Pro- that shot is an extremely physical... It's a physical shot. It's, it's, it ain't easy. It does, you don't put a clicker on your bow and become a world champion overnight. I can guarantee that. It's very, very, very demanding style of shooting. But anyways, that was the best thing I ever did because it taught me a lot of things. It taught me how to... Number one, the main thing it taught me is how to pull through a shot. You know, I, 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 in order to have, for me and for most guys, um, you have to pull through that shot. In other hand, in other words, you have to get off the string. It's, you know, you're, you're obviously shooting with your fingers and getting off the string can be difficult sometimes. You know, it's getting a clean release and that cooker taught me how to do that. And that was tens of thousands of shots. And that following year, I ended up going, started shooting competition and I ended up winning a world championship that year, an IBO championship and. So what I'm getting the only reason I say that is just to show that the year before I had extreme target panic, and I was able to work around it. And you know, since then I, I do other things now. You know, one the way I shoot now is so competitioners, I, I do, I'm a competitive shooter. Um, there's certain classes that you know that we shoot that we're not allowed to shoot a clicker, right? Right. And it, there's other ways around that. And Joel Turner has made some of this stuff kind of kind of popular. You know, like uh, he talks about grip sears and tab sears and internal triggers and things like that. And, uh, I've shot a tab, it's called a tab sear. So, you know, traditional archers, we shoot a tab. You can either shoot a glove or a tab, and I, I prefer a tab, right? And a tab sear is basically, it's a shot where you actually, I come back to full draw. I get my sight picture, get my aim, and I put my fingernail right on the back of the tab and I start pressing against the back of that tab. And when that pops, that's when my, that's my cue to shoot. That's the trigger to shoot. And basically what that does, that, that style of shooting, it gets rid of your pre-ignition, pre-ignition movements into your shot, you know. And uh, this style of shooting, though, takes an extremely massive amount of determination. Because when you get back to full draw and you get your sight picture and you start, you know, pressing on that sear, on your t- on your fingernail, whatever it is, your mind wants to let that, it, that sight picture looks beautiful, looks gorgeous, Right. And you're like, man, you just want to let go of that string, you know? But you cannot do that. You have to continue to work through that sear. Another thing I'm doing now is uh, the inter- it's called an internal trigger. I, I actually breathe air in. And I've been doing this is the first year that I've that I've kind of been doing it, taking the competition, and, and I'm having really good results with it. Where I just I come back to anchor, and I just start breathing air in. If you ever see, if you ever see like a fox going across the field, and you squeal like a rabbit to a fox. That's, that's all I'm doing. I'm just kind of sucking air in or breathing air in or whatever. And when that, when that air breaks as I breathe in, that's what triggers my shot. And the beautiful thing about it is there's no input into the shot. So, you know, when I run the tabs here, you know, I got tension in my hand. You know, obviously when you, when, when you pop that. You know when you when you're curling your your finger your thumb finger now you're you're, you're using muscles in your fingers right so it makes it a little difficult getting off the string. So yeah, when
0: you say input that's in that's the that. shot you're talking about some kind of cognitive thing that's going on with your body that's ultimately right. creating some kind of pressure or tension that could result in a manipulated shot because you you might be a yep. type of torque or something with with this style if I'm understanding you right it's there there's no, your, your shot execution in your your bow arm, your back tension, your release hand, all of that stays constant without any added tension, Emma, is that correct?
1: That's exactly right, there's no, it's, it's, it's an, it's, so when you're, when you're, when you're taking your fingernail and pop off your tab, that's not, an, that's, that's not an archery shot, right, you know, that's nothing that's archery related, that's not a, an archery movement, and, because uh, you're creating tension into the shot, well, when I'm breathing air in, there's no, there's no input, there's no tension, within the shot, you know, it's just, just breathing air in and it works really well. It's obviously taken tens of thousands of arrows for me to, for me to do it and, 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 and to kind of trust it and accept it and get used to it, you know, like anything else. But, um, it's one thing that's been working really good for me now. And, uh, I, I do think that it's, it'll, you know, Joel Turner actually, I think it was about two years ago, started talking about it. And there's, I know there's a couple other guys that, that do it too, but I think it's going to, in the next couple of years, I, I do believe that'll get more popular with guys, traditional archers, you know, start using it more, you know, it definitely works. I know there's a couple, you know, more guys are using it, but, uh, yeah, but the only reason I mentioned that is just to kind of, you know, kind of just get a taste for what, you know, the, many of the people that don't, have never, you know, been exposed to traditional archery. It's not just pull the string back and let it rip, you know, that's right. that's not what it is. It's a, it's a lot more advanced than that. And, right. uh, that's, that's what makes it the so dog on fun is that the level you can take it to. And, and it it's so stinking challenging. It is so challenging to, to, to be accurate with them. And the other thing is, too, it's just so much fun to watch. Your, you know, you get to see the arrow fly. Mm-hmm. That's what's so cool about it. You know, that's what's so much fun. You get to see that arrow bill. And, uh, but anyways, that's, yeah. So. I, I have
0: two things to add to this, and, and they speak at two different levels. And the, the first one is kind of like, you know, speaking to the level of the the people who are avid stick bow shooters recurve longbow shooters and you you made the comment about some people like to roll their nose up when it comes to adding a clicker or certain styles of shooting And, and while i'm not a traditional shooter by any means what i what i will say is if it's legal and it helps you be more effective and more accurate why wouldn't you do it? And, you know, I relate that to my compound shooting. Um, I I, I experienced target panic just the same. And uh, it took me a really, really long time to break that mental blockade. And what I've gravitated towards doing is I shoot a, a sear release, a a hinge style release, and I shoot that 365 days a year. And a lot of people go, Oh, you shoot a back tension release. Well, I shoot mm-hmm. a back tension shot, no matter what release is attached to the string. Back tension right, is right. a style of shooting, but what I find is that when I shoot that hinge release, that is the release that when I shoot under pressure, which, you know, if you're shooting at a target against your buddy, or, you know, like you shooting IBOs, or, or if I'm shooting at, at a at a, at a game animal that is the one that I won't break my form and I can execute my shot the best and, and won't fall for. It. And I still find myself under pressure with other style of releases. I'll, I'll kind of break habit, break form, and might make a right. a, a poor shot. So, you know, that's kind of my thought when you talk about your, uh, your clicker. But my second yeah. thing I wanted to ask you, and th- this is kind of speaking to that novice base, is – you talk about shooting and, and knowing when to shoot. And that is so foreign to me because shooting a back tension style in compound, I'm trying to do everything I possibly can to not know when the shot goes off. I have an idea of a, maybe a a certain time gap window that I know it's going to go off then, but when it goes off, it surprises me. And like, you, you can't do that with a stick bow but i'm in my mind somebody who's overcome target panic how do you go through and beat target panic but you still have to know when your shot goes off
1: no i don't know when it's going to go off so that's that's the system that i use right okay. so when so when that so with the tabs so with a clicker same thing with a clicker too when that basically what you're doing is you're increasing tension expansion on the bow right you're pulling through you pull and pull and pull, all of a sudden that 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 clicker clicks. That's your cue to shoot. You have no idea when that is going to go. Okay. Okay. Same thing with a with a tab sear or a grip sear. A grip sear is basically when you it's, it's 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 when you wrap your bow hand fingernail basically around the front of the riser and you roll it basically. You you pop your fingernail off the riser. That's a grip sear. I cannot shoot a grip sear. because I've tried. And I don't even know a lot, and I cannot shoot a grip sear. I torque the bow. It does not work for me. I I move on. I find, try to find something else. Right. That's where the tabs here comes in. So the tabs here, what you're doing with the tabs here is you're wrapping, you're basically uh, popping your fingernail off. So, so let me slow down here. So what you're doing is you're coming back to full draw, getting settled in, getting your sight picture, and then all of a sudden your conscious mind is only focused on one thing. You're watching your sight picture, right? You're just watching. You're letting you're letting your arrow float, and I'm I'm wrapping my pin or my uh, my uh, fingernail around the back of my tab, right? Mm. And I'm popping. And I'm just increasing pressure. I'm, I'm, I'm completely 100% conscious mind. And your conscious mind going only do one thing at a time. And it's 100% when I'm, when I'm doing it right anyways. Your conscious mind is 100% on the increase in pressure to get that nail to pop. And when that pops, that's when you fire. You have no clue when that is going to pop. You can anticipate anything if you want to. If you let your mind Go forward. But if you let your mind go forward, you're, you're out of your shot sequence. Your your conscious mind is not doing what it should be. It should be 100% on the, the, the pressure, the increase, the movement, basically, that gets you to, to pop through that sear. And that only, so you have no clue when that's going to go. Right. Because when you, you know, your fingers are connected to the bow. So you don't know, you know, how do you get a surprise release? Well, that's how you do it. You know, your, your sub, your, your mind can't catch it. You know, it's not fast enough to catch it. So there's no input into the shot. And the same thing with the internal trigger where I'm breathing air in. Um, I have to breathe air in. I've tried an external, I basically probably call it an external trigger where I breathe air out, but I cannot do that. I can't anticipate that because I could feel the buildup of the air when it comes when it's going to come out, you know, but when I breathe air in, I cannot feel that. There is no for me in the way that I shoot, you know, there's no, I can't anticipate that. So I'm just breathing air, you know, I'm just kind of starting to breathe air in. And when that air, you know, breaks through your mouth that's when you shoot. So you, yeah, it's a surprise release every time, but you know, getting back to your back tension release or your, you know, your, uh, uh, your hinge release or whatever, that's not easy to do for you though, is it? I mean, it takes a massive amount. It takes a lot of determination to stay in that movement, right? Um, it's not it's it's not something that just happens you can't you can't just you know it's a lot easier to punch that trigger right oh
0: absolutely i, I guess i have to think absolutely. about the way you're saying because I've, I've now done it so long that it is like autopilot but yeah you're right like you you're in order to get that release to break and fire i need to maintain my form maintain position and then in order for it to be an accurate shot i have to concentrate on where i'm aiming and and if I concentrate on aiming alone, and I do everything else in form correctly, the shot should break in an appropriate time, and it, the arrow right. should go exactly where
1: I'm aiming. I took uh, about two months ago. I went down to Lancaster Archery and took uh, Joel Turner's course. He came down there for a couple of days, and uh, it was the only type of archery instruction I took. It was a, it was great instruction, and majority of guys there were you know were compound shooters. There were a couple of stick bow shooters there, but it's all the same, right? It's all pretty much the same. He teaches the same concepts, um, to both compound shooters and stick bow shooters. And with the compound shooters, he, his son, I don't know if you know it or not, but his son just recently won the the Vegas shoot. Mm -hmm. Um, he won $85,000, 14 years old, right? It's incredible. (laughs) Absolutely incredible. And so obviously what Joel's teaching is what it works, right? And, uh, um, but what he taught or what he was teaching the compound shooters, right, was in the more of the reasons I wanted to go to this is because I aim too hard, right? If you, if you ever listen to anything he talks about, he says, let go of the aim. Well, I can tell you, man, I have a hard time doing that. It's because I've been taught and we've all been taught since we were little kids to aim hard, right? To aim, aim, aim. It's all we heard about our entire lives. But if you take his course or listen to him, he, he, he doesn't aim hard. He just says, let go of the aim. Let, let the pin dance, let the arrow dance, whatever, whatever your sight picture is going to be. Just get your sight picture and your conscious mind should be 100% on the movement to your trigger, to your activation, to your shot activation trigger. And that's why he, you know, he's teaching the compound guys down there. Um, uh, you know, just how to, how to work that back tension release, you know, just 100% of it has to be on the the monitoring of the movement of that, of that trigger, of that uh, back tension release, you know, or, or trigger release too, you know. But well, that, I think another key. thing
0: that's interesting when you say about that, and I'm sorry to cut you off there, I'm just thinking out loud with com- with compounds, he actually talks like there's a big push in target archery for, you know, people are always tinkering with their stabilizers and adding weight here and adding sure. weight there, and, you know, with his line of thinking, I think one of the things he's talked about is embracing the float, and I believe his son that won, won that with, like, one of the lightest setups ever. Yeah,
1: he did. He did yep yep not much weight on it but yeah yep yep just to let that float go let it happen right yep yep yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh so make sure, make, sure i understand stuff, yeah.
0: you with the, with, the mm-hmm. with what you're talking about with that so you got a clicker on there and you're kind of doing the similar stuff that i'm talking about you're um trying to keep everything constant on your front half and your bow arm, you're executing your shot, you know, your, your, your draw cycle, keeping form and you're doing all those things. And the, uh, the surprise is you don't know when the clicker goes off, but when you get to that distance, that's your cue to shoot and you shoot. Um, that's right. And and that's how you keep it a surprise. So it's a surprise because you're trying to focus on aiming and, um, be as non-cognitive as possible. The one difference about compound and recurve, and I, I guess that's really what I meant with my question earlier, is my, my, my release and my mechanical does it automatically. Like I'm not right, cognitively right. doing it. You still have to, and, and correct me if I'm not understanding you, you still have to cognitively shoot the bow.
1: You do, yep. Your, your fingers, basically what happens is, How it works is your, 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 your fingers go dead basically and the string pulls through your fingers and your mind can't catch it fast enough. When that, when that, when that sear pops, your mind cannot catch it. So there's no pre-ignition move. Yeah. There's no pre-ignition movements into the shot because your mind is not fast enough to catch that. And, uh, but that's like I said earlier, that style of shooting or this style of shooting, it takes a, you know, it just doesn't happen on itself. It takes an extreme amount of determination by the shooter you know you have to be determined and you know i i I feel that uh you know i want to be as accurate as i possibly can not only in competition but when i'm when i go to the deer woods you know and that's why i'll always tell the clicker you know that's um that's uh because the clicker keeps you you know you have the same draw length every time you know and when you're up in a tree stand that can change when you're shooting down you know you'd be surprised at how much shorter your draw is when you're aiming down at an animal, you know? And, uh, but I'll always shoot with a, with a trigger. I mean, I can shoot without a trigger, but within, I don't know, a month time, I'll get quick on, you know, I'll start doing what I did a couple years ago dropping the target and things like that. And, you know, I shoot with guys all, all year long and stuff and, uh, a lot of them have target panic and they don't, you know, they don't want to accept it. And I, the reason i been able to deal with it is because I've accepted it. You know, I know that I have it. Everybody has it. You know, to some to some degree, some guys get it worse than others, and and women too. You know, um, but just just how how you deal with it. And uh, the only way, the only thing that's worked for me is what you know, the methods that I that I've talked about here. You know, and you know it 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 it'll reared its head up in you know stressful situations for sure. I've you know I've seen it on a competition lines where guys you know they really really get in The target panic sets in, but it's, uh, what I, you know, what I describe to you is what works for me, you know, shooting with the trigger. And the flip side of it, the, the neg, I shouldn't say negative side, but the downside of it, however you want to word that, is it takes an extreme amount of determination to do it. And, And, and that's, you know, only the shooter can do that. You know, only yourself can do that, so. But that's what makes this so much fun, you know. So
0: it does, it's a challenge yeah. that you keep trying to face head on yep. and, and conquer it as best you can. Like, I, I'm just thinking about that target panic thing and trying to relate it between compound and recurve and and every time I think about it, I just see how much more amplified overcoming it is with that style of bow, because while I I face some adversity in trying to overcome target panic with my compound, I'm just thinking about the things that broke in my shot when I knew that a shot went off, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it was gripping my bow with my from on my bow hand and torquing or, you know, maybe not, you know, being weak on my shoulders and my bow kind of, you know, jumps forward on you like all the things that caused bad shooting when you have really bad target panic and i'm just thinking about trying to overcome that with a stick bow and it just like everything we talked about with with shooting a stick bow it's just amplified it's just so at at a much finer level to overcome and that's just that's mind-boggling to me because i think about how worked up i get in the deer woods and then trying to add one more like uh I'm going to call it a monkey wrench just because I don't have a better word, but like I, one more thing to go <laughs> right. to go against you in your, mm-hmm. in, your, mm-hmm. in your arsenal going after a whitetail. Right. Yeah,
1: it is. That's what, to me, that's like I said earlier, that's what makes it fun now. So, you know, and it's not for everybody. Trish archery is growing by leaps. Right now, it's a good time. It's, you know, it's growing by leaps and bounds right now. It's just, it's taken off. And uh, a lot of people, you know, I kind of like what it was for me, you know, and just, um, discovered it based because they got a little, maybe a little bored or something and kind of started dabbling in it and just kind of started, you know, one thing kind of leads to another. And, uh, but uh, it is growing right now and there's a lot of good information out there. And before we go, I just, there's two bits of information I, you know, that if, if anybody's interested in trying it, you know, I've had good teachers. Um, I was very, very fortunate when I started this, uh, with within a half hour of where I live. There's two guys that live within a half hour where I live that is taught me a tremendous amount of information and uh um anyways um, i shot for a year and i struggled for a year and uh until i picked up the phone and called these guys it's kind of a long story but uh the two bits of information they gave me was uh, number one don't shoot too heavy of a bow and you'll, you'll see that you'll hear guys talk about other guys talk about that you know don't overbow yourself especially you know it's just you know i shot a 60 pounds with a compound well I shoot 43, I hunt with 43 pounds right now. So okay. that's, uh, you know, I, I don't shoot heavyweight and that'll shoot right through any deer, any white tail. You know, it'll, it's plenty powerful enough with, with a, with a cut on contact, broad and the right arrow set up and a heavy enough arrow. But, um, the other thing that they told me, and this is huge, it's not talked about as much as what the light, the lighter bow is, the lighter draw weight bow is. And that is the length of the bow. The length of the bow is huge and it matters tremendously in, 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 in your accuracy, at least in my mind it does. And what I mean by that is, you know, I won't hunt with anything less than a sixty six I have a I won't hunt with anything less than a sixty six inch bow. I draw twenty nine inches. And uh, you know, for a guy drawing twenty seven inches, that might be a sixty four inch bow, something like that, you know, because there is a certain point where you reach, you know, too long of a bow for your drawing, like you start to lose Efficiency out of that bow, you know the the, right. the limb, the working part of the bow limb. But what that you know, a longer bow is going to be easier to pull, and it's you're going to have less finger pinch because you got you know you got a longer bow, your string angle is less, right? So you're going to get off the string a little bit easier. But um I have zero trouble hunting with a 66 inch bow in a tree stand. But I, the first year I hunted with a 62 inch bow, and uh, I, I was shooting 47 pounds in a 62 inch bow, and now, like I said, I shoot a 60, anywhere from a 66 to even a 68 inch bow and 43 pounds is, as mo, is the heaviest I'll go. Now, if I, you know, if I go Elcon, I might bump it up to like 46 or something like that, but the length of the bow matters, you know, and, and it's something you don't hear a lot of guys talk about, at least in traditional archery. And I go to a lot of the shoots and stuff like that and a lot of, a lot of guys are, are shooting like 62, 60, 60 inch bows and you know, that's a short bow. The shorter the bow, the harder it's going to be to shoot. And, you know, those limbs are going to pull a little harder. It's like a lever. The longer a lever you have, the easier it is to pull that lever, right? Same thing with a bow, with a with a with a recurve, a long bow. And uh, just just little things to keep in mind, and things that were taught to me by uh, a couple of good guys that I, that I shoot with up here, but uh, that, that have helped me tremendously. Well, so.
0: and I'm glad you shared that too, because I think about my um longbow shooting experience I, I I got into a kick where I, or a phase I guess where I wanted to I, I had it in my mind I wanted to try it and mm-hmm. before before any listener you know wants to get on my case about trying something it was just truly I was interested and sure I, I didn't take the time to fully commit to it but when you when I talked to you the last time you brought it up here in, in our conversation this evening um the overbowing yourself, I definitely felt overbowed trying to sure, shoot yep. that bow. It was a, I believe it was somewhere, it was a 66 to 68 inch long bow, but it was a 56 pound bow. Yep.
1: Okay. And yep. Yep. I, a little heavy.
0: Uh, I I shot for a while and it was it was fun, but I think I lost. uh, confidence or the, I lost the desire to really want to pursue any further of it because I felt overbode shooting and I got, I got tired and I felt like I would break form and it, it, it lost its fun for me, so to speak. Not only that, I, I, I had plenty of other things in my daily life that I just didn't make it a priority, but I think Mm, at some point in my life, I might there's a very good chance that I will want to go back and revert, and and I I want to try to go into a uh, journey of p- pursuing a longbow or a recurve bow, sure, just as sure, you've right, talked yep. about. And and I think that's the big thing that I learned is when that happens, I need to get the right equipment from the get go to have a good experience.
1: Right. And it, like you just said there, it may not be for everybody too, you know, the, the whole traditional thing, but at some point you're probably going to reach that, you know, and that's what it was for me, you know, but yeah, um, like I said earlier, the the best thing I did was uh, in 2000, at the end of 2016, I, I bought that target bow. It was an old vintage target bow. It was 70 inches and it was 35 pounds. And that is, if anybody starting out, that's what I would do again. I mean, that is the best thing to do because that's where you learn your form. And a uh, heavy bow is gonna be very, very difficult to shoot and uh, to, to shoot accurately anyways, right off the bat, you know. and uh, but the best advice is to buy, you know, start off with a light bow and and uh, you know a longer bow too, for sure. And, you, and like I said, I just hunt with a longer bow because I don't have any trouble with it in, in a tree or anything like that. you know, I just I've gotten used to it and uh, it's, it's it lets me be. A little bit more accurate, you know, a little bit more forgiving on uh, on the shot. So, but yeah,
0: I I never understood that even in the compound world. Like, there's a big push in all the bows now; they're shorter, and it's a tree stand model and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Like, I shoot a compound bow that's 36 inches axle to axle. I have absolutely zero problem whether I'm in a ground blind or a box or a tree stand or on the ground. Like, it's I have no problem shooting that bow. I'm thinking, and I've always thought the same thing too. Like. Well if it's such a problem then how do people with with uh, traditional equipment do it?
1: Right, yeah. Well I started back in uh, ninety two with a compound, I think it was forty two inches or forty something, sure. forty three inches or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. Yeah, you should that's yeah, it's good to hear you on the longer ball. Definitely, probably a little bit more forgiving and more accurate for you too. So
0: you know, they they say it's not. You know, I've heard so many different people that talk about that. Is there's no differences? It's not. But you know what? In my mind, I I like the string angle better. I feel that it's I shoot a seven inch brace height, which for a compound is a longer brace height now, and it's sure, just yep. I I think it you know even if it's a half a percent mm-hmm. is all it gives me I, I I'll take a half a percent all day long when it comes to the archery game.
1: Sure. All right. Um, Absolutely. Yep. But you yep. know, um, yep.
0: Corey, do you have anything else that you'd really like to just share or or you know, reach out? You know, do you do you do anything beyond? Um, uh beyond like you've you've written some articles and stuff do you do anything social media like is there anything you like do you post stuff are you not a person that posts stuff like you know out out of uh, of curiosity for people who are listening might want to know more about you
1: i don't mitchell i kind of keep to myself and uh you know i'm certainly certainly glad you asked me to be on on your on your show there i don't do a whole lot of podcasts or stuff like that i but I decided to do this one just to kind of, uh, you know, promote traditional archery and, uh, cause it's, it's, like I said earlier, earlier, it's enriched my life. And when I killed that deer, um, a year and a half ago or whatever, <laughs> I said it a million times, I was a very, very fortunate hunter to, to be able to hunt a deer like that. And I was a hundred times more fortunate to be able to kill him And, uh, the, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of hunters will never have that opportunity, you know, and. I wasn't even going to share the story or anything. And my buddy from down home in Clearfield County convinced me to do it. And, uh, I'm not much of a public person, but, um, I decided to, to, to write an article on it and, uh, uh, just to kind of show, you know, my love for traditional archery and, and how it's changed my life. But, you know, hopefully somebody listening tonight, you know, or, or today or whatever will, uh, maybe at least try it. And, uh, and like I said, it's not for everybody, but it is, it is a lot of fun. It's, 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 it's extremely addicting, a lot of fun. So And,
0: and now I'm, so. I am curious since, since we have kind of flirted around that conversation and I know you've done some other episodes and you wrote articles about that, you know, mega giant, uh, Northern Pennsylvania, hardwoods, whitetail that you killed. But what, what, I don't remember, what was the final score in that? And did you get that deer aged?
1: I did, yeah. So he grossed uh, one, just a little over one ninety, and netted one eighty one, uh, just just under one eighty two. Uh, I think it was one eighty one and seven eighths. He, he, okay. he uh, netted, but yeah, he was. He was. I did have him age, He was six and a half, and uh, wow. Um, I, I had you know I had two sheds from him from the previous previous years, uh, both left sides, and uh, at four and a half, what surprised me. Obviously, he had good genetics, but. At four and a half, he would have grossed in the 170s, you know, based off the shed that I have. That, that shed scores 76 inches. Wow. And, uh, it, it was funny because, uh, <laughs> after I killed that deer, well, after I had him scored, I should say, I had, I had a couple people, um, cause he was a, you know, I, he's number two in the state, um, for, for typical, uh, Boone and Crockett score. And, uh, I had people ask me, you know, oh, are you upset that he's not the state record? <laughs> Well, I, I kind of laughed the first time somebody asked me that because I, I didn't, I didn't, th- I thought they were joking, you know. And I, you know, never, ever in my life did I ever figure I'd ever hunt as a state record deer, potential state record deer, ever, ever, not where I hunt. You know, never, I would never, ever, And that never, that thought never crossed my mind. And, uh, you know, I, I, luckily I was able, able to, to do that. And, uh, you know, I would never, I was never upset of, of, that it wasn't a state record. I was, if anything is the opposite i'm just grateful for the opportunity to number one like i said just to hunt a deer like that number two to kill them I mean, i'm the luckiest guy in the world to, to, to be able to do that you know to have that opportunity you know just extremely fortunate but uh yeah so but uh that's about all i got mitchell to to, to, to to share you know um as far as, as my, my advice and things like that so but yeah i'm glad glad to share some stories and it's good talking to you and Thanks again for uh for having me on your 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 show here. So
0: I appreciate it and hey, you have a good one.
1: Hey, you too, Mitchell.